I'm Blake Hargreaves. Welcome to Future Stops. You're hearing the music of Claire M. Singer from the soundtrack of the documentary film Organ Stops. In season one here on Future Stops, Claire spoke about her work gathering the resources to save the pipe organ at Union Chapel, London, providing new vision and life to this historic instrument. Both Claire's music and the organ at Union Chapel are featured in this documentary about people's attempts to save and preserve the great organs of the UK. Today on Future Stops, we speak to documentary filmmaker James Dawson and organ restorer Martin Renshaw, who come to the pipe organ from very different backgrounds. My first exposure to the pipe organ must have been when I was a boy in, in musty churches, listening to, listening to it make strange noises and wonder what on earth was going on behind those pipes and wonder what was um, just perplexed by how it all worked. My parents went to church a bit. They weren't very religious and they used to take us along occasionally. So I, saw, I suppose it's through, like most people's, you know, it was through the church. But it sort of stayed with me and the sound stayed with me. And I've always been intrigued with it. And I've always wanted to make a film which featured music. And, that, and the more I got interested in pipe organs, the more I was interested in them, them as instruments and, and as me- me- mechanisms. But also I really wanted to... What I found appealing about them was that, that they, they might offer a sort of lens through which you could look at a very a changing secular Britain, Britain that was becoming more secular. And, and because it, we, one could explore the music as well, it felt like it, had, it, had, it was a rich scene that I could ex, you know, explore. Well, my name's Martin Renshaw. I currently live in London, though I've also lived in France, but I was brought up in the Midlands. And uh, as a young boy, I became a professional musician at the age of nine, singing in the choir at St. Paul's Cathedral. So half of my life, at least, has always been singing, because in fact, I was lucky enough to carry on singing after my voice broke as well. And I've sung since with opera. I've helped direct youth operas. And I sang with a, a small group of just three singers for a long time, but I've sung in many ensembles, both in France and in England. Uh, At the same time, when I was 16, I got the bug for organ building, tried to become an apprentice and was told I was already too well educated. So I carried on being educated, but uh, then started ripping organs apart and trying to put them back together again. And after my university education at Oxford, I started my own workshop, uh, which was sort of (laughs) bit up and down, but uh, sort of got going after about uh, eight or ten years. As filmmaker James Dawson begins the search for a focus to this film about Britain through the lens of the pipe organ, Martin Renshaw is engaged in work outside the UK. Despite the distance between the two, fate seems to bring them together. In fact, I started looking around for organ tuners, because I thought, well, an organ tuner is someone who must have to look after lots of pipe organs, and they're probably seeing them disappear, and they've probably got lots of stories about what's happened to them. And a friend of mine said, I'll look into this for you a bit as well. And she found Martin for me, and she said, oh, this guy's interesting because he's not, he's not, he's not, a, he's not a tuner, 
what he is is someone who's saving these pipe organs so i thought oh brilliant so as soon as i met him i thought he would he would be terrific so when we the first bit of filming i did with him was when he went to durham in the north of england to rescue a, a, a pipe organ in a, in a little village called winston and it was a rather lovely lovely i think it's a i think he says it's a, made by someone called holt uh i've never heard i've never heard of the organ builder but it was a fine looking instrument and he he was in his element crawling underneath it you know just looking at it he loved it he thought it was brilliant and he sort of anyone who was with him at that time you know would thought, oh yeah this is it, it sort of his passion sort of came across brilliantly i thought ah, i found the right person to film with this passion james describes and a lifelong connection to the liturgical traditions of choir and organ music lead Martin Renshaw to an unexpected new career. Yeah, it did start actually purely by accident. I was living in France then, and it was something like 1999 that an organ I looked after in Kent uh, became available, as they say. In other words, it was being thrown out. And I thought, this is far too good an organ to waste, so I went and got it. And... I actually put it in the workshop in Nantes. I, I, I live in, when I'm in France, I live near Nantes on the, at the bottom end of the Brittany area. I happened to be talking to a local priest one day, near where I lived, in fact, because I actually lived just north of Nantes. And he said, well, why not put it in our church? And it's a nice church with good acoustics, and it's been there ever since, so 20-odd years now. And that set off a sort of chain reaction. <laughs> I don't know quite how, but somehow people got to hear of it. And uh, then the uncle of a cousin and a sister of an aunt and so on got to hear about it. And I've now put something like 35 organs in churches in France, I should guess. Uh, and so that was an interesting exercise. But living in France, I had no idea of the extent of the calamity that was overcoming organs in in england well in britain in general in fact uh i came back to a country i hardly recognized in fact i should say uh the, the sort of the whole organ culture and the whole singing organ culture the sort of nexus of the two organs and singing had completely collapsed oh, i was going to say it was going to collapse actually it already had collapsed basically and organs which had been at the center of english culture since at least well let's say the 14th century anyway when they started coming into parish churches in huge numbers then had begun to all disappear and my upbringing in a church singing from a very early age with an organ and then of course in the cathedral at st paul's and then other other cathedrals had and being educated at the same time singing and eventually playing too that sort of had collapsed and had now become a province of those able to pay fees because my entire education was free i was very lucky i was on the last train that left the station with free education in a choir school so as a result the whole thing has become undemocratized organs have become as churches have closed and so on less and less available to the public that just become less visible and as a result the churches didn't have begun not to care too much 
and I don't know what where the root of the collapse is, but I think it's like a a pile of bricks that once you take the brick out of the bottom, in other words, the education side, then the whole lot collapses. And we've seen that collapse and it's actually getting worse. Churches are closing now at a huge rate, something like three or four a week uh, over the whole of Britain. So you can see I, I, I fell in love with the organ at an early age. And in fact, it turned out that I was four when the organ in my father's church was taken apart and cleaned. I have no memory of it, whatever. But when I went back about another 30 years later to do some work on the same organ, people in the parish told me, ah, you stood in the corner and watched them and you asked questions. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like me. So of these 35 or so organs that you've relocated, how many of them did you ro relocate outside of the UK? Oh, these are 35 in France alone. So, uh, But I've also probably relocated something like, uh, I don't know, 15 or so in England itself, where there's an absolutely minute market for relocation. Uh, it's really very difficult to find somewhere to take an organ to in, in England itself. There's, it's just nobody's made an effort to persuade people that it's better to have a good second-hand organ of appropriate size and style, of course, and everything else. Uh, than to keep on rebuilding your old heap of, well, bits and pieces. Uh, that, that is so ingrained in England and has been since really the First World War when people had to make do and mend, I suppose. There ought to be a market here because organs are falling thick and fast from the highest, from college, uh, college chapels, from public school chapels and so on. Uh, some of them really good instruments, of course, but fashion, if there's a fashion change and you've got the money, you know, in Canada, you change the organ if you can. But uh, here, that option's highly restricted to the, the very top echelons, the cathedrals who do rebuild their organs, or colleges who've got the money to buy a new instrument, or a public school or whatever. So the whole sort of democracy of organ has, has fallen out entirely. And I, now I see that on the ground because, the, I mean, the number of organs I take out at the moment from Methodist churches. Methodists were the community church above all community churches. They were founded that way. They, they existed that way until, well, what, 30 years ago, maybe? And part of Andrew Carnegie's gifts to organs, you know, he gave um, money for half the cost of an organ to 4,300 churches in the British Isles alone, let alone 7,000 your side of the pond. That was in order to stimulate music in communities. And I've actually, last year I took two organs that had been bankrolled by Carnegie out of closed Methodist churches. He and his organs left us a legacy which, in a way, institutionally, we just don't seem to be able to deal with. The culture of Great Britain is changing. Um, the organ is such an emblematic part of that culture. And how is it go going through that change? And uh, what does preserving these instruments mean? I like the idea that an instrument can be preserved and cherished, but also re reinvented, which is why I particularly like what modern pipe organ enthusiasts are doing. I think that's great. 
because it has a wonderful facilities, you know, acoustically. And, uh, but it also allows the possibility for that, for the, you know, for the old repertoire to still live on, which I think is brilliant. I mean, it doesn't always have to be liturgical, you know, as you know, I mean, it's obvious, but uh, so it means, I think it means that there is a, it, it, it keeps the past alive in, in some forms. And I know what Martin, during the film, Martin asked Martin, well, why is this so important to you? And he said, well, it's, these instruments are the same instruments that our, all our ancestors would have heard. And also they would, and some of the older, much older instruments would have been what, you know, Handel and Bach and people like that would have heard. This is the same music. So I can see what he means about that. You know, it, it's, it allows music to come down through the generations. Almost every pipe organ has, as part of its story, a community who build it and use it, sing and worship with it, a unique history which adds meaning to any music made with it. As these histories unfold throughout the film, there is both tragedy and redemption, and without a doubt the most tragic storyline in the movie is that of 96-year-old Blanche Beer and the organ she'd been playing for 84 years. Blanche Beer is someone who we martin and i came across during our filming and he martin went when i was with martin he went around many different churches that were closing in the north of england mainly in the county of durham and one of the, one of the churches he went into was a church school in east stanley uh, and east stanley had about three three different types of methodist churches uh, and blanche beer had played at this chapel or this church i should say or since she was 12 years old and she was 96 and she, and she's and i was and i couldn't quite believe this when i when i heard about her so uh, i didn't meet her directly then i heard about her and but uh, the, the minister who was showing us the organ and i said where does she live where does she live oh just around the corner so i just hop, immediately went around the corner to meet her i thought i've got, got to meet this woman and uh, she was wonderful, you know, for 96 years old. It's just staggeringly kind of articulate and uh, intelligent and warm and and such a sort of nobility about what, you know, what was happening to her because they were taking away, well, they wanted to stay, they, they closed the church, but also they they were going to, to, to sell off the pipe organ. And Martin was hoping that he might find a new home for it. Uh, and and so he met with Blanche and they had a, and you know she played it for him, but of course it, they turned off all electricity, so he had to hand pump <laughs> while she played, which was great, you know, which is brilliant. So it was a, made for a great scene in the film. I'll go and put some wind into it. <laughs> yes. Keep on, sir. Put the 
little exercise over for today, dear. <laughs> that is jolly hard work. What happened to that organ? Well, what happened to that organ is what is what happens to many, many pipe organs that are sort of made redundant, is that there is they have a scrap metal value and the the, the the organ stops have a you know it can be resold on eBay and things like that. So and people <clears throat> you can also cannibalize them and put the pipes in different organs and things, but for the most part, I suspect that they are, you know, they're, they're sold as scrap, and that's what happened. They, someone came along and offered, I think, offered a small amount of money, and the minister said, okay, well, we, we want to get rid of it, so off it goes. I think that's what happened. I'm not 100%, but when Martin got there again to look at it, he was told, you know, that they got some money for it. So it was, it was, well, it was sad for everyone, but particularly Blanche, of course, who, who, whose organ it was, really. Why is it important in your film to include, you know, both some success stories of relocating organs, but also this uh, tragic uh, story of a failure? Well, as a filmmaker, I think one of the things you're trying to do, well, one of the things I try and do is give a voice to people who sort of don't really have much of a voice. Uh, and Blanche hadn't, you know, that, that elderly generation who sort of in Britain, who sort of, you know, live in the provinces sort of slightly, and, you know, her Christianity and her worship and her music as well was you know, totally central to her life. And I, don't, I hadn't really heard from people like that, I suppose. So I wanted to kind of make her quite, I was very thrilled to meet her to be honest I met several people like her but she was she was the most articulate and the sort of most inspiring but then I wanted to also make people appreciate that it's not the end of the road for pipe organs or not all of them you know get put on the rubbish dump you know and, and there are stories about it, pipe organs being rehomed and one that I re- and of course the pipe, the pipe organ that another pipe organ Martin found did eventually find its way to a Seventh-day Adventist church in East London, which was mainly black Afro-Caribbean community who in their, who sit and singing and singing to a pipe organ is sort of was part of their experience uh, growing up, some of the older generation, their experience growing up in the Caribbean. So it felt like there were different layers of sort of like an onion. You're peeling back sort of British history as well, because of course, those people came from the Caribbean to Britain, but and the music, pipe organ music, had gone from Britain. I mean, we used to export, we were the biggest exporter of pipe organs in the world. You know, they, they listened to pipe organs in the Caribbean that came from Britain. So there was a nice circularity to it all. And it felt like it was, you know, this, this instrument could tell you a lot about British culture as well. What does it mean for a community like that to receive an instrument that they probably couldn't, uh, you know, muster the resources to build themselves from scratch. Well, it meant so much. They, they were thrilled, really thrilled. And, and the truth is Martin really doesn't make any money doing what he does. He sort of, he does it as, I think he does it because he, he, he does it for the joy of it really. And he does it because he wants people to enjoy what he enjoys. So, and they they were absolutely thrilled, and that you know they, I think a new pipe organ, 
of that size might cost a quarter of a million pounds. What's that? Well, three hundred thousand dollars or something like, maybe even more. And uh, they he got they gave he got it. Well, I was saying I was just about to say he gave it to them. He's charging them a frat a total you know minuscule amount compared with that. I won't tell you how much, but it's very small amount. <laughs> and uh, so they so they they've got they've got an extraordinary instrument. Which, but the thing is, they'll look after it and cherish it, which is what what it needs. Ever since the organ has been used by the church, by the East London School of Music, which uh, Fiona is the director of, and she she was the one who was conducting. Was it Handel or Purcell at the beginning? I've forgotten which, actually. Uh, and uh, she has now 14 pupils, organ pupils, in the, in the school. And, and the Royal English College of Organists, <laughs> I, hate, I, I hate to say, uh, the Royal English College of Organists is uh, providing the funds for excellent tutor, who is Nick Morris. He is the one who played the organ at the opening, in fact, and he, he is now their subsidised tutor. So it's a fantastic opportunity for people in what is one of the most deprived areas in England, and there are plenty of them, to experience a huge range of music, not just the organ, of course, but to me, who would have thought that three years ago they could have, could have played the organ. For us, it's just, they're just fantastic young ambassadors, and of course, that's a great hope that we can re-establish this sort of pile of bricks that uh, has got disturbed in some other way. I mean, it's, it's got to be in some other way, because I'm afraid with most of the institutional churches doing what they are, there's really very little hope of going back 30 years.
You're listening to the Future Stops podcast, an initiative of the Royal Canadian College of Organists. My name's Blake Hargreaves, and I'm your host as we explore the world of the 21st century organ. We just heard today's feature piece, In Nomine Nine, by John Bull, performed on the Jacobean chest organ at Knoll House in Kent by Colin Tilney and produced by Martin Renshaw. The film Organ Stops, directed by James Dawson and featuring organ restorer Martin Renshaw, is a poignant force in raising awareness about the fate of these instruments and the effect on the people who love them. Since making the film, Martin Renshaw has founded a charity which can hopefully benefit from the awareness the film has raised. Well, it's a, it's a char- pipe, up, pipe Organs is a charity that Martin has founded with a f- few other people, and it's going to campaign to keep, save, uh, save and keep valuable instruments. Instruments, a bit like some of the instruments you saw in the, that are in the film, that other, might otherwise go to the scrap heap, or even might be inappropriately sold abroad. There's some very sad examples of instruments that, from you know, a, a lovely hole ditch that has been sold abroad from its original setting in a, in a church in, in, in Bluntisham in Cambridgeshire or Huntingtonshire, I'm not quite sure, but it, it was in its original setting. You know, there's very few of those instruments around and I think it's gone to a, ho- a new home in, in uh, Holland, I believe. But really, it's such a shame that it went. There's no reason for it to have gone. It could have just been looked after in situ and where it was, you know, it was built for that particular church. Uh, so that's a good example of, I think, the charity would try and campaign and so perhaps support that church in, in restoring the organ and or at least making it part of the fabric of the building in a way which they were happy with. And, you know, so it's about trying to kind of encourage people to keep hold of pipe organs, but also if they don't want, at the end of the day, they don't want to, then finding new homes for them and making it a bit less because you can't rely on just a few people like Martin to do this, to be a bit more of a, a wider thing. So and that's, that's, that's essentially what the charity is going to do. So we have to set up a, a, a trust that's proactive, but above all helpful, because if we're going to maintain organs, we're going to have to show people how to do that. We're going to have to encourage them with perhaps some small subsidies to get organs tuned. Um, back in order and we've got to raise the public profile of organs and it's very interesting actually because organists tend to be very dejected well first of all i'm sorry to say they tend to be like me over 60 um and they they have sort of almost given up but they're sort of clinging on by their fingertips or fingernails probably so we've got to also go to the young people, and I'm trying to do that in various ways as well, and uh, see if we can get them interested. But we have a dejected older organist. We have an uninformed younger set of organists, I think it's fair to say. But we have a public that once they know about it, they actually do get concerned. And those, those what I call sort of lay, lay un previously educated in the in the business public who see the film are absolutely astonished and very moved and you know wish something could be done they they realize that this is a part of our 
yeah, well, it might be called intangible heritage, I suppose, but it's nothing more tangible than an organ. So if you have to shift it, uh, they, they see that this heritage is sort of disappearing before their eyes. These communities have had this wonderful heritage of music, which has been given them for the last century or so. And now they're seeing all that hollowed out and it really is distressing. And I, I can't do it all, but trouble is there are not too many people who are doing it. And we have to try and uh, get the country as a whole savvy and able to do something. It's going to be, a, I think, a big uphill job, but we'll, we'll work very hard to do it. It's impossible to preserve every object of value that exists. We can make an effort to put the resources in place to preserve things the way we enjoy them in our lives, hoping others in the future will have similar enjoyment. But this cannot be controlled forever. The documentary film Organ Stops offers some stories which expand the imagination of possible fates of an instrument. The passionate work of Martin Renshaw giving pipe organs new life and James Dawson telling these stories presents alternatives which make it clear that while there isn't always a solution to preserving a once-beloved instrument, sharing their fascinating stories helps cherish the memory and in the case of some instruments, a wonderful new life which might never have been imagined really is possible. We'd like to thank filmmaker James Dawson and organ restorer Martin Renshaw for joining us today. For information on where to see organ stops, and how to support Pipe Up for Pipe Organs, check out our social media at Future Stops and Future Stops Podcast, where you can bring your voice to the conversation. Future Stops is a podcast from the Royal Canadian College of Organists produced by Andrew O'Connor with Sanjay Parker as Community Manager and Executive Producer Elizabeth Shannon. I'm your host, Blake Hargreaves.